You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Lazarus Group has a new back door. Bogus Clubhouse apps are advertised on Facebook. Crypto jacking goes to school. A ransomware cartel is farming, but so far apparently without much profit sharing. The U.S. Senate is preparing to make strategic competition with China the law of the land. Dinah Davis from Arctic Wolf looks at phony COVID sites. Our guest is Jacqueline Miller from NTT on the importance of mentoring the next generation. And Russia remains displeased with a lot of Twitter's content. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, April 9th, 2021. Researchers at ESET have discovered a hitherto unremarked backdoor North Korea's Lazarus Group deployed against a South African freight company. The backdoor, Vivera, has been in use since December of 2018. Its initial compromise vector is still unknown. Code similarities and the reuse of familiar techniques lead ESET to attribute Vivera to Lazarus with high confidence. As they put it, quote, Vivera shares multiple code similarities with older Lazarus samples that are detected by ESET products as the Nukesped malware family. However, the similarities do not end there. The use of fake TLS in network communication, command line execution chains, and the way of using encryption and Tor services all point towards Lazarus. TechCrunch reports that criminals have taken out a number of ads in Facebook to hawk what they misrepresent as a clubhouse app for PCs. Facebook has removed the ads, several of which stopped attempting to communicate with their command and control servers in Russia after they were sandboxed. At least some of the malicious ads appear to have been intended to deliver ransomware. As much commentary has noted, educational institutions are increasingly attractive targets for cyber attack. Avast points to a large and vulnerable attack surface poorly defended by under-resourced security programs. While ransomware attacks have drawn considerable attention, Palo Alto Network's Unit 42 has found that other forms of crime, notably cryptojacking, are also causing problems. Recent cryptojacking incidents in Washington state seem to have been incentivized by rising altcoin prices. Their conclusion is a glum one. Quote, Cryptojacking is always going to be around, and so are the network attacks that make cryptojacking possible. End quote. The word cartel is one that raises the antenna, sometimes hackles, It sounds menacing, evoking either fat cat profiteers under Mussolini or lethal drug lords. 
the kind of people who made you sort of almost root for Gus Fring and Los Pollos Hermanos when you watched Breaking Bad. So when there was talk of the Maze Gang establishing a ransomware cartel, that sounded pretty no bueno. How did it all work out for them? Well, ransomware as a service and other similar features of the criminal-to-criminal market are well-established and well-known. But a cartel, in the narrower sense, the kind that might gather around Don Eladio's pool to arrange cooperation and divvy up turf, did that work? Analyst One this week published its study of the aspiring cartel lords, and they found that they fell somewhat short of their aspirations and others' fears— Analyst One not unreasonably took profit-sharing as one of the essential features of cartelization, and it's precisely such sharing that seems to be missing. The cartel Maze apparently aspired to organize would have brought in operators of not only Maze, but also Ragnar Locker, Suncrypt, Lockbit, and Conti Ryuk as well. The formation of such a cartel was announced in a communique by the Ukrainian gang Twisted Spider. Analyst One notes... If this is true, this collaborative partnership, sharing resources and revenue, would pose a far greater threat to the community than attacks from smaller individual gangs by themselves. The gangs involved in the cartel, as distinct from the ransomware strains they deploy, are Twisted Spider, Viking Spider, Wizard Spider, and the Lockbit Gang. Suncrypt, now defunct, also claim to be part of the cartel, but in any case, they're now out of business. These gangs are Russophone, and they operate out of Eastern Europe. They also avoid hitting Russian targets, taking steps to ensure that their payloads don't execute against Russian victims. There's some division of labor and some sharing of tips and infrastructure. They're looking into automation, and several of the gangs do offer ransomware as a service to less skilled hoods. But profit sharing? Mm, Not so much, at least not so far. The report concludes... Analyst 1 assesses that the cartel is not an authentic entity, but instead a collective of criminal gangs who, at times, work together in ransom operations. There needs to be more than cooperation, resource, and tactic sharing between gangs for their partnership to qualify as a true cartel. Profit sharing is the primary element missing in the coalition of ransomware attackers discussed. Cartels are dangerous due to the large financial resources that profit sharing provides. Bloomberg reports that the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee has prepared a comprehensive bill, 283 pages long, that would establish a policy of strategic competition with China. The measure, which the Senate Majority Leader hopes to bring to a vote with bipartisan support this spring, would increase U.S. investment in technologies deemed strategically important, seek to foster a joint approach to China with U.S. allies, and would extend the jurisdiction of the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States to colleges and universities that receive more than $1 million in gifts from a foreign source. That last measure is designed to close off the relatively unfettered access senators see China having enjoyed to the relatively freewheeling U.S. academic research system. That access has been regarded as a threat to intellectual property by FBI Director Ray and others. And finally, the Russian government is still displeased with Twitter, which isn't knuckling under fast enough to suit Moscow and the social platform's compliant removal of content that Russian law and policy regard as illegal. TechDirt has an account of how Russian authorities have extended the slowdown they've imposed by way of reprisal. 
They're using middle boxes to run Twitter traffic through for deep packet inspection. Because there are workarounds available to avoid this, Russian authorities are responding to those workarounds with what TechDirt calls the more collateral damage-prone IP-level block lists. The writer suggests that being forced to use block lists, quote, might act as a deterrent for censorship-obsessed governments that don't want a whole lot of attention focused on the fact they're massive cowards afraid of the free exchange of information that might challenge their hegemony. But, you know, probably not. A government whose predecessor classified roadmaps and severely restricted access to photocopiers is unlikely to worry too much about that form of reputational damage. Now, depicting them as a cute bear spilling his Halloween candy, that will make him crazy. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Jacqueline Miller is Chief Information Security Officer for Global Managed Services and Platforms Divisions for NTT Limited. Her day-to-day includes overseeing security and compliance programs, but in addition to that, she spends time mentoring young women, making sure they know there's a place for them in the industry. Here's my conversation with Jacqueline Miller. Any woman who has grown her career in technology and in cybersecurity has had to overcome some of very common challenges, which is, you know, 
on the way up, there were very few, if no, um, mentors that looked and sounded like me, right? Um, I've had fantastic mentors um, over the years and do today, but a lot of them are men and just to be frank, white men, um, and they have incredible skill strengths um, and experience that I draw from when I have questions or I'm working through something um, that I need a mentor for. But the challenging part is it's lonely. That rise to the top is lonely, and it doesn't have to be that way. Um, So I think you know, one of the most important things for me looking back over how I grew is helping others that are looking to make that journey uh, into leadership in technology and cybersecurity, uh, make sure that they have forums where they can find like-minded women who are going through the same process as themselves and also women that have been through it. Um, And finding those resources can be challenging, although I will say it is getting considerably easier um, and there's, there's just more out there in the world right now, which is fantastic. When you're out and about, you know, mentoring um, younger women who are considering coming up into the industry, what's what's your message? What what, um, what sorts of uh, inspiration do you share with them? Um, so I pull from you know my background as much as possible, which is it's more important to get started um, than it is to know all the things that there is to know about cybersecurity. Certainly, if young women have the opportunity to go through an associate's or a bachelor's program before they enter the workforce. That's fantastic. But only about 50% of women that are in the workforce and even lower with men uh, actually have a degree before getting into cybersecurity. And I think that's really interesting. And it's it's um, identifies the fact that there are multiple paths into the industry. So when I'm talking with women that are thinking about that, it is to recognize that, that there are multiple channels in and not to keep your blinders on and think that there's only one path forward or one way to succeed in terms of developing a career in cybersecurity. There's a lot of really great certification programs uh, that can help women if college is not something that is affordable or just from a timing perspective is not something that's achievable. And I think it cybersecurity benefits from a really diverse background. Um, So having people that come in from very different experiences is incredibly important to making sure that we have full line of sight of the types of threats um, and scenarios we need to be aware of going into the future. And how do you spread that message uh, from the top down? You know, when uh, getting that word out to the folks who are doing the hiring Yeah. Um, One thing I can't stress enough, whether it's cybersecurity or any other type of technical field, is making sure that you have a diverse hiring panel. Um, So one of the the key indicators in studies or key success factors in studies um, that have been done over the last 15 years is making sure that there's women and other diverse hiring managers or even just advisors on that hiring panel. It'll help identify resources that don't look so male and don't look so white. Um, You know, we as humans have a natural tendency to be drawn to people that look and sound like us. That's a a natural thing that a natural trend that happens. And by Mm -hmm. diversifying our hiring panel, we're opening ourselves up to having a different conversation and seeing candidates through different lights, which is really hard to do when you're just trying to do all of that, you know, have all of those world experiences yourself. I don't I don't think that any one manager is that well-rounded. It takes a team um, to make those types of decisions, especially for leadership um, or middle management, team lead, um, or senior architecture roles. 
I highly recommend having a more of a panel style interview. Our thanks to Jacqueline Miller from NTT Limited for joining us. There is a lot more to our interview. Don't forget to go listen to extended versions of this and many other interviews at CyberWire Pro. It's on our website, thecyberwire.com. And I am pleased to be joined once again by Dinah Davis. She is the VP of R&D at Arctic Wolf. Dinah, great to have you back. Um, You know, we are being uh, bombarded with information about uh, COVID vaccines as they're being rolled out. And along with that comes folks who are trying to lure us to illegitimate sites. Um, I wanted to check in with you for some tips on how do you know if if a vaccine site is the real deal? Yeah, um, I think this is really important, right? You you don't want to be giving out your personal information, maybe your insurance information, or in Canada, like your health card information or things like that, uh, to sites that are not real. So you can actually follow a very similar path that you would for checking out if a website is good to shop on or not. So the first thing you want to do is check for spelling mistakes in the domain name. If it uh, is a statewide vaccine program, you know, you can probably find it off of the state website instead of, you know, clicking a link that you may have gotten in an email, right? Um, I know in Canada, every single province has a link to its vaccine program on their main provincial websites, right? So clicking things um, that come in an email, probably not a good idea. Obviously, we always say that, but In this case, you know, these types of sites should be easily found on the internet through sites you trust. But Mm. what if you can't check that and you're not really sure? Okay, let's take a look. Is the website secure? Is it using HTTPS instead of HTTP? If it's not, I would not trust that at all. Yeah. And then you can use a website. My personal favorite is is islegitsite.com. That is is the actual thing, is islegitsite.com. And so I ran through one of, um, I live in Ontario, so I ran through our um, COVID site for uh, the Ontario provincial government, and uh, I had it run the report for me. And so the report summary was potentially legitimate. So they're never going to say 100% yes, it's legitimate because the one time <laughs> that they were wrong, they don't want to get sued. So right. um, yeah. usually you'll see potentially legitimate or you will see potentially not legitimate um, uh-huh. and, and, and you go from there. So then it checks about five things for you that, you know, you could go and check on yourself, but it's easier to do it this way. Uh, so it checks the web of trust rating or the watt rating. And that watt rating is uh, crowdsourced and collected website ratings and reviews from over 6 million users. It's like a, a nonprofit site that runs. And so the rating of that particular website was 93 out of 100 which is obviously quite good, right? Mm-hmm, but if it has mm-hmm. a low watt rating or it doesn't even have a lot watt rating, bad, very bad, bad, bad. Yeah. Bad. <laughs> it then checks a number of webs- website blacklist sites. So there's a whole bunch of sites that will collect known bad sites. Um, so this service will check against that to make sure it's not on one of those lists. Cool, good, it's not. Domain creation date. 
So if it's off of a state site or, uh, you know, a local health site, that thing should have been created quite a while ago. So, for example, Ontario.ca was created 18 years ago. Mm. Um, if it was created in the last four months, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it's completely bad because it's possible that a vaccine site could have been created then, but it's not a good indicator because usually mm-hmm. it'll be just a page off of a, a more stable site, right? Mm. Obviously, the HTTPS, it checks, and then it also checks the website popularity. So um, how much traffic does the site get? So if it's legitimate, it should be a lot of traffic. And they use the Alexa traffic ranking. So for Ontario.ca, it's ranked like 5,000th uh, among the world's most busy websites. Any rank below 500K, that's lots. So it's probably a pretty legit site. And then it goes into even like 10 more things you can go check out on your own. But in my experience, if the five things above checked out, uh, you're probably good to go. If any of those are bad, you're going to want to really take a second look or try and get to the site from a formal like state site or or hospital site or something like that. Yeah. So islegitsite.com. That's a yeah. good one. It's, uh, I'll have to check that out. Uh, it's a, you know, it, as you say, it's a, it's a convenience to have all of these different tests run. Any one you could do on your own, but to have them all in one place saves everybody a bit of time. Yeah, and I run it all the time on, on all kinds of sites, uh, shopping sites and anything where I'm like, mm, not really sure if that's legit. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, good information. Diana Davis, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. It keeps working even after 30 minutes. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Filecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. We'll be right back.